freedom. What is it? We're having all kinds of conversations in our country right now about what constitutes an abridgment of freedom. In some quarters, complaints are being leveled that it is an intolerable violation of our rights to be forced to wear a mask into a Trader Joe's. This is, it seems to me, a consequence of a long history of our culture fetishizing freedom without linking it to citizenship. When you become a citizen of the United States, you are apprised of the rights and, crucially, the responsibilities of that oath. Some of those responsibilities are transactional, like paying your taxes or serving on a jury. The freedom above all crowd have got it in their heads that even those things are possibly a violation of their secret freedom and should be systematically legislated out of existence. No wonder many of them also refuse to wear a mask, which is primarily a way to protect fellow citizens from a virus you may have and not know about. My point is, as our imperfect union was set up, our responsibilities are attendant to our rights, and one cannot exist without the other. And if you don't believe that, you might need to either reacquaint yourself with the concept of citizenship, or make yourself one of those weird blood-stained sovereign citizen documents and go live in some bug-out bunker in rural Michigan. But that's not most people, and it's probably not a problem most of our listeners have. We understand that to have a civil society, there is some give and take. And sometimes you've got to go do a thing you don't want to do to contribute to the greater good. Imagine then that your freedom not to be burned alive in a taxi cab on a fictional New York City Avenue that the Empire State Building rises from the center of is suddenly, and without warning, impinged upon. What then? Who wouldn't want to declare independence from that? That's the kind of independence, the kind of freedom, that today's film is about. Creepy but somewhat relatable and macOS version 7.6 compatible aliens come to our planet to wipe us out and harvest all our resources. Never mind that almost all of the resources one could harvest from Earth are so abundant in the solar system that any interstellar capable species would save themselves a lot of trouble getting them elsewhere. These are the kind of aliens that Hollywood loves to warn us about. The kind that don't make a lot of sense from a thermodynamic standpoint, but enable Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith to quip around and get in dogfights and smoke cigars, and enable Bill Pullman to debate whether the use of nuclear weapons is justified in a planetary attack by deranged but technologically superior species bent on wiping out all of humanity. This is our 4th of July pork chop episode, and while you are standing around your socially distanced barbecue celebrating your patriotism with, I assume, a pork chop, I hope you'll reflect on your responsibilities as a citizen, your responsibility to pay your taxes, to serve on a jury if you're called, to take the safety of your community seriously, and to fucking nuke the shit out of some UFOs if they try to destroy our planet. It's a fine line standing between a principle and hiding behind one. You can tolerate a little compromise if you're actually managing to get something accomplished. Today on Friendly Fire, Independence Day. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that isn't a signal, it's a countdown. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Happy 4th of July to one and all. Mm. Yay! Just, I'm, I'm just filled with a patriotic fervor this time of year. You always were. <laughs> and uh, so glad to be talking about this great movie that has held up. <laughs> this is like one of the most important big summer blockbusters of all time how old were you when this movie came out we have to start with that 
I will tell you, uh, I graduated high school in 1997, so I would have been uh, a junior in high school during the summer that this film premiered, and I can remember it in great detail. (laughs) I really can, because I don't know if you recall, if you have the same amount of recall for this as I do, but the Super Bowl commercial for this film was all anyone could talk about for a long time. It was a teaser trailer, not to be confused with a a real preview. And if you go back and watch it, I think it's easy to see why. It's a teaser that makes you think this film is going to be serious. I was looking forward to seeing a serious film in the summer of 1996. Like I I went to it on opening night. Ben, I think I told you the story on on a Greatest Gen episode, but like there... Like in high school, the, the the crowd was filled with high school students who were ready to be blown away by this serious apocalypse movie. Uh-huh. There were like fights in the crowd among high schoolers. And then one of my buddies <laughs> hopped in to, to like break a fight up and was like, guys, 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 this is Independence Day we're here to see right now. This is important. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can we put our differences aside for a few minutes in order to watch the movie that will define the rest of our lives? <laughs> there was a recent Twitter survey where the question went something like, what was the first movie you went to see that you realized communally was a bad movie? And I think this was the answer to that survey question for me. I could just feel the entire crowd turn once you recognize that what we had bought was that Super Bowl teaser and what we were being given was not. What was the, what was the Star Wars movie that came out right around this same time? The the first uh, one of the the bad ones. Mm, I think that would have been Phantom Menace. Did that come out ninety seven? Oh, okay. So this movie this movie was the one where you felt for the first time betrayed and then phantom menace came out the year later and then yeah and i have to assume that was when that was when you joined the the american uh communist party is that right <laughs> i was i was different by then independence day really changed me oh phantom menace was 99 oh that much longer adam was a yeah. grown man by then <laughs> i was 12 when this movie was in theaters what were you allowed to go to it? And did you see it as a 12-year-old? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, it was like some of the most violent things I'd ever seen, like fireballs barreling down the fuselage of an airplane and the bodies like succumbing to it was a little bit above my pay grade at that point <laughs> in history. <laughs> and did you also feel like the movie was a letdown or was it everything your 12-year-old heart desired? I, I thought it was great. I. I loved yeah. this movie when I was 12. Like, I, I loved feeling a little bit sophisticated for having experienced something that was as as grim as, as some of those images, <laughs> you know? It's, it's, like, it's like a training wheels film for watching something with an R rating. Right. I thought a lot about the distinction between PG-13 and R when I was watching this last night, and that difference in sophistication is fairly pronounced. I think even is somebody reading like a broadsheet newspaper right now. <laughs> Go ahead and take this one off, John. No, no, no. I was reading. Uh, <laughs> I was reading the St. Louis Post Dispatch from 1967. <laughs> okay, but anyway, put it yeah. away for yeah, for the next like hour ish. <laughs> Sorry, let's keep going. <laughs> 
Adam, I interrupted you. Like I think about the very first R-rated film I saw, which was Speed, and how much more sophisticated a movie like Speed is than Independence Day. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is not, I mean, a low bar. Yeah, the paragon of sophistication <laughs> that is Speed. Arizona Wildcats. There's so much that's interesting about this movie. I think that like there's just some marketing genius in releasing it on the day that the events of the film start. And mm. like that's kind of amazing. The the like incoherence of that though being maybe part of it, part of the appeal being that when he gets up on the soapbox and says today, today we celebrate our Independence Day. We're gonna throw off the shackles of the aliens that have been here for two days. <laughs> like it's like it's like kind of a perfectly dumb American. Uh, reimagining of what independence might mean from like comfortable white people that have forgotten. I want to like, make an uncomfortable admission to you both. No one else is listening to this, so I feel safe. No, that's right. In, in doing that, <laughs> yeah. you're two hours into this film, probably at, at the point where Bill Pullman uh, holds the bullhorn up to his mouth and delivers his speech, and I'm like, "There's no way this is gonna this is gonna hold up. This is gonna be." as shitty as I remember, and I looked down at my arms and I saw the goosebumps and I was like, fuck you, man. <laughs> like, really? I, I could not believe it worked. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's what a soundtrack will do, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, the violins start going and the sunset in the background. It's effectively manipulative in that moment and so few others. You really have a slog on your way there. What's your history with this film, John? Did you watch it in theaters? Were you in the irony brigades that went out to see it? No way. I mean, I, I, <laughs> one thing that's hard, to, that's maybe hard for you guys to fathom is what an incredible snob I would have been at the <laughs> age of 25 or 26 when I saw this. Oh, hold on. The, the room is spinning. <laughs> I, I just, who, what? Know. Are you saying they didn't show ID4 in the varsity <laughs> theater on the Ave, John? <laughs> I, I guess, I guess I would have been 27 when this movie came out and I was so pitched against it. I was pitched against it like, you know, and by pitched, I mean like, my feet were planted and I was leaning in to being against this movie uh, at 30 different levels from an artistic level, from a cultural level, from a, you know, at the time, like a, a kind of anti-capitalist, anti-commercial level. I was just Independence Day personified everything that I was fighting against in the world. After you had heard about what it was, though, or or in the roll-up? Because I I really want to make that distinction. Like, no one knew what this was before the film came out. It was a surprise. Here's what I knew it wasn't, which was a thoughtful, <laughs> a thoughtful and introspective assessment of what would happen globally if we actually encountered a threat in the form of extraterrestrial people. Yeah. You could just tell, even the roll-up, if it was going to be serious, even if the movie was serious, it was going to be a, a, a war movie about fighting aliens. And at the time, I was very interested in the premise of, a, of an UFO invasion, but I was interested <laughs> in it from a sci-fi novel perspective, which is like, like uh, from a personal perspective, like let's follow 
a team of people that end up living in the sewers and try to reforge a civilization or from a diplomatic perspective. But what this was, what this was going to be was a, was a major big budget piece of shit. I just didn't know what kind. Did you like Stargate a few years before the other, like that's the film that Roland Emmerich coasted on in order to get this film. Like no, I didn't the success see of Stargate made independence day possible. 1994. I was still not sober. So mm. I wasn't going to any movies called Stargate at the time. I mean, I went through a Stargate a few times, but I don't mm, think that Stargate yeah. was visible to anybody else in the room. Mm. <laughs> Why do these guys all have Egyptian godheads all of a sudden? I was like, I'm on the other side. I'm on the other side. You guys, I'm on the other side. What do you want me to bring back? My my roommate a year before, had we were out at some hemp fest walking around in a complete like just drugged out state and my roommate shannon turned to me and said and oh oh it was a hemp fest but it was on the fourth of july it's a hell of a combination i think it was something or maybe it was just the fourth of july and we were we made it a personal hemp fest i don't remember it all every day is a hemp fest in in certain (laughs) people's lives (laughs) but uh but shannon turned to me and was like man you know what you know we need we need a global independence day where we're like independent from the man and from the (laughs) like just we need independence from like everything man and i was like oh wow man (laughs) that reminds me of the of the day i asked my dad uh on father's day why there wasn't such a thing as children's day And he was like, that's because every day is Children's Day. <laughs> play in the backyard. <laughs> but but so when when he when Pullman got up and gave that speech, and because this is the first time I've ever seen the movie, uh, he was giving the speech and I was what? like, Oh, whoa, it's Shannon Kelly's total vision. It's Independence <laughs> Day for everybody, man. <laughs> No, I've never seen this. I never saw it on cable. I avoided it like the plague. And and then fortunately, I think the world re- realized that this movie was bad enough that it stopped trying to show it places. I don't I haven't this isn't a thing that shows up on hotel TVs or airplanes. Uh-huh. You're the perfect person for me to ask this question of then because like attempting to be as objective as possible, when was the moment in this film that you knew it was bad? The movie starts off pretty well. There, we're we're on the moon. We're looking at the leftovers of the Apollo program there on the moon, and all of a sudden, a shadow comes over them. That's pretty spooky. Yeah. And then the shadow starts to, and then it comes over the thing, and then there's a somebody. John, what, you didn't a, watch the movie, did you? You're just like no, no, scrubbing wait. through it on the show. <laughs> wait. Oh, you know what it was. You know what it was. It was. It was, we're at SETI. This is, mm-hmm. this is the beginning of the film. We're at SETI and the camera is panning through some empty halls at SETI. And I said out loud, we're going to come around this corner and there's going to be a guy doing something yeah. kooky. The one lab dude at, the, at SETI who's building a Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks. And we come around the corner and sure enough, there's a guy like with a putter playing golf while the <laughs> while the machine is like bzz, 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 bzz. and he goes and looks at it and is like 
oh no i knew then it was going to be a it was going to be a corn palace <laughs> but i don't think it was until jeff goldblum rode his bike through the office no one notices except harvey firestein who's who's <laughs> doing his like absolute just 1996 like first openly gay bear figure voice where he's like David David and I was like this movie is over for me there's nothing left here Scorched you could do a perfect impression with one word that was great (laughs) I like that Jeff Goldblum kind of invents dot com startup culture in that moment though like that uh, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride a wheeled vehicle through a, a busy open plan office full of people. Grab it, grabbing a little bowl of M and M's and some Fruit Loops on my way. Yeah. Well, I'll uh, I'll win a point in in somebody else's foosball game, and then I'll get to my desk and get to work. But honestly, from that point forward, I can't think of not only I mean when I saw Judd Hirsch, I was pretty excited because you don't see Judd Hirsch in a lot of things. But then Judd Hirsch is doing such a like, oh, vault. Why the, oh, you got your thing over here and then the one over here. And it's like, what is that even? Are we, we're, even in 1996, were we doing that? Yeah. Did you guys read about the reaction by far right uh, Islamic folks to this movie leading to like, like the film being like censored and boycotted in, in certain parts of the world? Tell me more. So in uh, in Lebanon, they censored the part where Judge Judd Hirsch puts on his yarmulke and leads a prayer at, at the end, and like Hezbollah, like made a point of calling on all Muslims to boycott the film because it was quote propaganda for the so-called genius of the Jews and their concern for humanity. Yeah. I I will say this: I am infrequently on the same side of an issue as Hezbollah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> but the idea of wanting to to censor and bury the 1996 film Independence Day, I think, is a is a side I can take. <laughs> Please address your correspondence to go fuck yourself at maxfunkenstein.sex. CC Adam. This was a time in history where the idea of like having some Israeli fighter jets parked next to some Saudi fighter jets and they're working together on something was controversial to some people except this movie is heart and soul post-racial america right that the only thing this movie didn't have was denzel it's got every other thing that is trying to really communicate that we are that the war is over and we're all just one big happy family everybody's here the first lady is hanging out with a stripper but it's the stripper who's wise no, you know, and and like it's all everybody. Your man. call sign is wise stripper, John. <laughs> I think that like the post racialness of this movie is very, very much like for, uh, at the forefront of it. But also, I think that it's got a very interesting relationship with masculinity because there isn't a really like super macho main character. Like the president's not that macho, even the marine is not that macho. Right. And everybody's pretty. They're not macho. They're pretty. Yeah. And I wonder, like, it's also like a kind of patriotism that's really stripped of a lot of like a a lot of meaning. And the director, Roland Emmerich, is a gay German 
man. And I wondered if you thought that that like, oh yeah, like I think part of why this movie was like so big overseas, aside from the like small controversies surrounding the depictions of Jews, uh, is that like, even if you're not an American, like this is a fun movie and it doesn't ask you to like believe that America is the best country to like enjoy the movie. Like it kind of flatters the American audience without like making it, without rubbing it in everybody else's face. And, and, and I think that like the kinds of big budget Hollywood blockbusters we have now are like calculated to play to this exact strength. Right. So, so jingoistic. And and what's cool or not cool? What what sort of illustrates your point is that we do have the we do have the CIA director who is both mealy mouthed and undermining. You know he's he's yeah. he's like he's a bad guy. And hawkish. He's super hawkish, right? He's a bad guy at, in three different ways, right? If you want there to be evidence that America is a corrupt uh, country, he gets to shoulder that burden, but he's also the one that has the most doubt about the president's macho-ness and gets shot down by him. The perfectly cast James Reborn here. Like, th- th- he's exactly the guy. If we don't strike soon, there may not be much of an America left to defend. Sir. He's the only human bad guy, right? Every other human being is good in one way or another. They all rally. There's no other villain except maybe the guy that shows up at Randy Quaid's trailer and tells his kid that he's that if his dad doesn't dust his crops, he's going to get, <laughs> he's not even going to run him out of t- town. He's just going to go f- hire another crop duster. That's the most macho character in the movie. The, the, the farmer that's pissed off that his crops didn't get, get the right anti-insect spray. He drives up in the truck and you're like, oh boy, here goes the, it's a freaking showdown. This guy's going to pull a gun. There's going to be a fist fight. And he holds out a hand of wilted radishes. And he's like, look at these radishes. <laughs> Your dad had better get here by tomorrow or I'm going to hire the other guy that does this thing. The Korean barbecue restaurants that I work with are not going to be happy. <laughs> Did they cut that scene before that same farmer was like, and who gave you custody to three minor kids? Yeah. How does that happen? <laughs> How did how how bad was your wife or how violently did she die that you're in charge? Like the most the most like blatantly jingoistic uh, like rah rah US America hamburger hamburger bang bang part of this movie is the like NASCAR infield of Winnebago's that show up at Area 51 to save the planet. Like the idea that that those people would be the linchpin of of doing anything to advance the cause of uh, of humanity. What's amazing is that they in in this movie, you know, they seem like basically they came from the slab uh, outside of uh, outside of the Salton Sea, and yeah. we recognize them now through our 2020 eyes as a bunch of mega hat wearing like off the grid sovereign citizen like meth cracked out boomers but in this movie <laughs> they're presented as kind of like uh the crowd from the matrix 2 like a sort of international <laughs> group of wa- wanderers and wayfarers and inside a cave dance party havers yeah right and like there's jar jar binks and here we are and somebody's playing the liar you know like it's uh it's made to feel like a ragtag fugitive fleet when in fact we know 
that those people are, I mean, the reason that they're storming area 51 is that they want, they want the truth about the UFOs. (laughs) They're not here to help anybody. And what's great is that then that group is handed a bunch of F-18s. Like, hey, anybody here ever fly? I thought a lot about like what the bare minimum barrier to entry is for piloting an F-18. Like, do my four hours of simulator time, like, would that <laughs> would that really qualify me? Are, were they, could they be that desperate? Like, it's almost a weird kind of 9-11 kind of math. Like, I... We need pilots. You don't necessarily need to know how to land. Like, right, get right, up right. there and shoot missiles at the thing. Or get up there and just be something to get shot at by the UFOs right. so that the five pilots that can fly can get there faster. Or, in other words, the atom on friendly fire. <laughs> you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to mm-hmm. run faster than your friend. Right. <laughs> the end of the movie, uh, as originally written, had the Randy Quaid character showing up out of the blue in his crop duster with like a missile, like duct tapes to the wing. Oh, of it. how much better would that have been? <laughs> Was it a fertilizer bomb that he made out of <laughs> out of all this surplus fertilizer? I got the recipe from my buddy Tim. <laughs> what would have been great is if they had launched an Air Force that was basically as bad as their Winnebago army. If that, if that had been like, like seven F-18s, two uh, Cessna 172s, a crop duster. You're Dunkirking this, John, in a really fun way. I know, right? Like a Piper. uh, We've got like a couple of uh, like Citabrias. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A bunch of fabric wing Citabrias up there. Uh, You're totally right. It's, it's a plain dad movie, (laughs) a plain dad movie. And then the UFOs can't comp, they can't accommodate for the fact that these planes are all flying like 80 knots and they're like, Whoa, and they're putting on their brakes and they're like, Whoa, shit. That would have been a great scene. It's fascinating how willfully uninterested this film is in military at all. Like, I was hoping for a little more final countdown. Like, there's so much meat on the bone when you consider scenes like the ones in in the Gulf where all of these mixed militaries have landed and formed squadrons together. Like, I would have loved, and for a film that's two and a half hours long, like, cut something else and give me how that actually works. I found a moment of pedantry about that very scene, Adam, and it's and I, and I think that the person that wrote this very much wants the same thing that you want. Okay. Uh, in the first RAF F-16 scene, the tail number on the airframe in the background, WS-690, was actually assigned to a Gloucester Meteor NF-12 night fighter built by Armstrong Whitworth in the late 40s and early yeah. 50s. Page 311 of Military Aircraft Serials 1912 through 1966 by Bruce Robinson. Current UK military serials begin with a letter Z. Current tail numbers are painted in 12-inch high white characters on the rear fuselage, not the tail fin. The national markings are also incorrect. If the RFA had operated F-16s, the aircraft would have carried low-visibility pink and light blue tactical roundels and tail cockades together with squadron markings on the fin and either side of the fuselage roundels. 
the littlest tail cockade is your call sign for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Look, every 12-year-old knows. That was obvious to the three of us, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, probably the people listening may not have noticed that. <laughs> but that, that, the scene that Adam was just, the, was just kind of uh, thinking about, where a, where a Saudi F-16 and an Israeli F-16 line up on each other, yeah. like, you're my wingman, let's go. And yeah. then, then an Iranian F-4 come, or F-15 or whatever comes flying in, and they're all like... You know, like Thundercats, go! <laughs> That's Dunkirk to me. Like, instead, this film is interested in making the NASCAR infield the Dunkirk fleet, and that and they do nothing. They give Will Smith a ride with his with his UFO that he punched in the nose. That's right. They did bring Will S- Smith and his and his punched UFO. Will Smith walks across the salt desert like twice in this movie. He does a lot of walking. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like a salt desert. Like, where does this movie take place? Because there's a giant salt desert somewhere in America. I can tell you where. The Great Salt Lake is what you're referring to? Yeah, or like the Bonneville Salt Flats. It's like right in between LA and Area 51, I think. Mm. It's basically... Sort of not, though. It's pretty far (laughs) north of there. I mean, you could go from LA to Area 51. You're going to go through Vegas, though. I mean, you know, you're out... It is desert, but it's not, it's not the salt flats, but that's a little, that's a little quibble. There's so many bigger quibbles to have. I feel like when Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum actually fly into the mothership and suddenly we're in this HR Geiger universe where we're inside a ship that's big enough that what looks like Imperial Star Destroyers are flying around inside of it. Yeah. That was cool. I thought so too. I didn't think we were going in here. And that wide shot of like the troops lining up, like hundreds of the troops in in march formation. So cool. Yeah. And where was that this whole time? Like that's a that was groovy. Well, I mean, like I think one thing to this movie's credit is like how it is willing to go there whenever like it it posits a a place or a thing like like you know, Area 51 comes up and then we're in Area 51 oh. seeing the, <laughs> the flying saucer. Like the the big spaceship at the end like is implied at the beginning, but we never get a good look at it. And then we do. It's pretty amazing. And then Data shows up with his long hair. <laughs> Those cool like low top wallabies. <laughs> I love that. It's like one of his best roles. Good job, Brent Spiner. The creature effects... Not bad. Pretty good. Sort of. Yeah. And gross, the way that it should be. The special effects are genuinely of a very high bar. Like, it does look like the White House is blowing up. It does look like the uh, U.S. Bank Tower in downtown L.A. is blowing up. Those are just miniatures, but they blow really nicely. I got to agree with that. But what I want, what I want, (laughs) is is a UFO movie where the aliens are like kind of appealing. Maybe they have a little fur. Maybe they've mm. got a like a little bit of a kind of a cute little face. May, not not like big eyes. It doesn't have to be like Can I interest you in Star Wars 3: The Return of the Jedi? On, come on. Not not <laughs> but I mean, but I'm talking about like world destroying aliens, aliens that are here to to take over and and like suck our blood or whatever, but make them look like cats. Or make them look like, <laughs> you know, like potbelly pigs or something. Why do they always have to look like the afterbirth 
of a shark. You know, like every time. And you're like, that's not, not necessarily, man. Not necessarily. Am I right? John, one of your, your uh, quotes that has endeared you to me forever was a thing that we shot for the Engadget show where you suggested that perhaps humanity's ultimate destiny was to be a space virus and just take over everything, much like the aliens in this movie. Yep. I, well, it's even more delightful to me now that I know that you'd never seen this movie when you said that. <laughs> I always think of us as just basically a blood infection of the earth, which was a, which was an organism that somehow mm-hmm. got, got sick with us. And that <laughs> as we start exploring other worlds, we're just going to be that same sickness imported from one planet to another. But we're cute. We look like little furry cat monkeys. At least I do. Right. Yeah, you do look a bit like a cat monkey. You'd welcome us to your planet, wouldn't you? Like, hey, everybody, it's the Beatles. You you would catch me completely off guard because I would be like, oh, this guy's cool. And then you would start laser nuking all of my major cities and I wouldn't know what to do with myself. And the thing is, I'd be laser nuking your cities while at the same time standing there going, I'm not laser nuking your cities. Here, listen, it's all a misunderstanding. And then I would like turn to my friends and I'd be like, he's, it's a, it's a misunderstanding. He's not really doing it. He's, he's nice. No, he means something. He means well, (laughs) that's the movie I want to see where the aliens are like, are like bullshit artists. (laughs) Are these aliens pissed that the scout ship went down in Roswell and all of their buds were stuck in tanks and had experiments done to them? Is that why this is happening? I kept oh. waiting for that. The flimsiness of the reason of like they go from planet to planet, just harvesting and 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 killing, like it, that seemed less strong of a reason than we did fucked up things to their scout ship and they are pissed. <laughs> well, but also when when they fly that scout ship, that self same scout ship, which they've like p- patched together like a like a fifty seven Chevy in Havana. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Are you telling me that the mothership doesn't have some kind of like ID chip that they would say, hey, this is the ship that's been missing for uh, like 50 years? Yeah, like, but they got so many of them. It's like it doesn't even, you know, it doesn't even register. I think that's a reason for the RFID necessity that John's talking about. Like, you've got to keep this stuff organized. I mean, even Dark Vader would know that this was something that had that come came from some other you know that came from whatever planet nebulon <laughs> i feel like jeff goldblum and to a similar but totally opposite extent bill pullman were told that they were in a different kind of movie than how they are acting like jeff goldblum seems plausible at all times like he f- feels very like his character feels very lived in, in a way that maybe only Jeff Goldblum could make possible. But I feel like Bill Pullman was told that this was Mars Attacks, and that's the sort of carriage that he should give his president character. This His first scene, when you meet the president, was when I knew this film was bad. I didn't understand his vocal effect. I have a confession to make. I'm sleeping next to a beautiful young... I feel like he was using this film as an audition for Lost Highway. It was so weird. You for sure hear that in the big speech he gives through the megaphone 
you know, to the assembled like 80 meth heads that are going to fly that all these Marine jets. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, he's, he's giving a stump speech to a bunch of people that are just like, okay, we're, we're still, we're all pretty freaked out about flying these planes. Can you like dial it back a little bit? Like you're not on TV right now. You know who was missing from that from that scene and from that squadron was the Porkins. Like we cut around to the same three characters in that scene, but like I want I want some variety. I want infinite variety and infinite combinations in those F 18s Quaid was the Porkins. Quaid's is a shitty Porkins. <laughs> Quaid is, is a it? shitty Porkins. There's our T shirt. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Airsats Porkins on the challenge <laughs> coin. <laughs> He's also got like a at least a pint of whiskey in his belly when they put him in the in the cockpit of that. Uh, yeah, it's an amount of whiskey <laughs> that two cups of coffee is not going to erase. Is that how whiskey or coffee work? <laughs> I know. I know that there are a lot of uh, active duty uh, listeners to Friendly Fire. I know that there are some fighter pilots. And I really want to know how much it would take to take me, a guy that had his student's pi- student pilot license and has flown in the in the pilot seat, uh, a Cessna 152, a Cessna 172, a Cessna 185, and that's it. Uh, how hard it would be to teach me to fly an F-18 enough that I could get it off the ground and keep it in level flight. Yeah. <laughs> like no no chance of landing the thing, no chance of pulling any kind of move. Just get me off the ground and hold it in level flight. Now if I if you sit, sit me in the plane and you say here's the throttle, here's the here's your ailerons, here's your, you know, here's your flaps. Go. If I just put that throttle forward and pull back on the stick when I, you know, if you put a little piece of tape on the on the airspeed indicator, like when it gets here, pull back. <laughs> Am I just going to be able to fly it? And make sure that you don't put the tape upside down, right? Because that, <laughs> that's what happens in the UFO later. Right, where it's like, oh no, you gotta you push forward to go backward. That's the one yeah. trick the aliens had because their their minds are like cat minds. <laughs> John, I I would bet almost anything that you would conduct yourself better than Harry Connick Jr., who for some reason takes off his mask during a uh, descending radius turn and and kills himself in the process. What was that about? I think he got a little bit up in his head about the fact that he just proposed to Will Smith. He got cold feet and he just didn't know what to do. Which is more implausible in this film? Uh, the idea of Will Smith piloting an alien ship and successfully completing the the nuke the mothership mission, or that any woman who has ever lived in the history of this planet would enjoy the type of engagement ring that has two dolphins <laughs> in, an, in an Ouroboros around, around a diamond in the middle. A dolphin 69 ring. The ugliest engagement ring in film history is what that is. It ties into her dolphin earrings though. Oh yeah, guess so. I really have to know like where, where we were in 1996 where the primary love story in this movie is between a marine pilot and a girl he met at a strip club and her son. Like, that's the romance we're rooting for. That's the one that, like, exemplifies America. And, like, of all the... I've, I 
honestly was rooting for the Harry Connick Jr. Will Smith romance <laughs> more <laughs> than I was rooting for this other romance. Uh, and it, it's not, you know, it's, I'm very sex positive and I'm very, you know, pro sex worker. I just felt like, who is this? Why, why does the fate of the world hang in the balance with this lady? What, why is she the indomitable spirit? Why is she in this movie? Two things about John. He's pro sex worker, anti Hezbollah. I'm anti Hezbollah. I'm pro sex worker. I'm pro and you vote gay marriage. <laughs> I do. I'm pro combining Independence Day and Hemp Fest into one mega holiday. Wow. Vivica A. Fox, pretty great in this movie. She's she's not given a ton to do, but she gets her own storyline. That's for sure. She really does. She's not given a ton to do, but she's in the movie a lot. And that might be that might be my complaint because it's like she's not doing anything, but we keep cutting back to her and everything that happens, everything that happens after she looks up and sees the spaceship in the sky in their front yard. I don't think you go to work that day, Vivica A. Fox. No. I think you call in sick at the club. She's like, boy, I picked the wrong day to pole dance. Nobody's giving me any <laughs> tips because there's a there's a 14 mile across spaceship hovering over L.A. What a fucking weird scene. What are the chances that people wouldn't have already decided to evacuate the cities at that point? Like the fact that New York is still like just going about its business when they're like, they're, they're like realizing they have 30 minutes left and the president says, evacuate the cities. Well, you remember when we did War of the Worlds and we had a conversation about like, there's a, there's a monster coming up out of the pavement and all these people are just standing there. It's exploding the sidewalk 15 feet in front of them and they only start running when it starts lasering them. We talked right. about that for a while and then there was all this pushback on our social media feeds from all these people that were really? like, actually, people all the time stand right next to a disaster and it happens all the time. It's very common human <laughs> being behavior. What font did uh, they use to get that particular tone? Well, it was kind of a very, it was super knowledgeable people talking about what other people do in the event of <laughs> how they behave. Group dynamics, Ben. So as I was watching this movie and I had those same thoughts, like, I'm pretty sure when that spaceship showed up over my head, even as a layperson, I would have put together enough pieces to know that A, they didn't come in peace, B, <laughs> that being under them was a less than optimal place to be relative to being not under them, and C, uh, I could no longer trust the government to have much a much better or more well-informed response to this than just me and getting in my car and getting the fuck out of here you know what i mean like you don't look up there and go yeah send those f-16s up i'm sure that this 14 mile wide spaceship doesn't have any defenses against a sidewinder that kind of thing just drives <laughs> me crazy like the movie doesn't have to cycle us through an hour and a half of people in washington trying to figure out you know, like, okay, now we'll send in the Jeeps and see if the Jeeps can... It's like, the Jeeps? What? Is there an attempt in this movie to open a diplomatic channel with them? There's the uh, the helicopter with the lights affixed oh, to the, the sides of it. And there's the one where the, where the alien is like, release me, release me. And the, the president's like, we want peace. No peace. 
you die. It's like, okay, well, that was just the one. John has become the number one impressionist of this podcast. No peace. I have got to believe that that glass is in fact bulletproof though, right? <laughs> what are they thinking making the glass to that lab shootable in the way that it is? That's ridiculous. No, no, no. You can just shoot right through it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's got UFOs on the other side of it, but you uh -huh. can just shoot right through Actually, it's not even glass. It's just candy. Just use regular glass. It's fine. President Whitmore is our first president to have served in the Gulf War. Right. Yeah. He says maybe my favorite line in the film saying that the Gulf War, all the, all the morality was very simple. We knew what we had to do. <laughs> Now, much yeah. more complicated. Yeah. Things were so much simpler in the Gulf War. That's 100% <laughs> true. We didn't have to invade Baghdad and we didn't have to depose Saddam. All we had to do was get them out of Kuwait and like bury a thousand Iraqis in a trench and what? Steal a bunch of gold, right? What were the goals of the Iraq War again? I forgot how the code goes. It's crazy what a Kennedy haircut on Bill Pullman does to just sort of like, yeah, that's the president, obviously. Like giving that haircut to most actors, I think is the bare minimum. That's all you have to do. And you got yourself a president. <laughs> I liked that the in the in the America of 1996, as depicted in this film, the fact that he was a fighter pilot did not insulate him from being called a pussy by the press <laughs> right like the movie opens on him having low low uh, approval rating and like camille paglia makes a cameo where she's like well you know i thought he had more i thought his pants had a bigger bulge <laughs> and he's like oh the all of the mclaughlin group stuff in this movie is fucking great <laughs> i feel like films like this try to do that thing where you see real news anchors and real TV shows and like real actors playing themselves doing a thing, talking about the experience we're in during the movie. Why is McLaughlin Group that thing for this? And how many episodes does John McLaughlin get in one week? In a three-day span, is McLaughlin Group on 12 hours a day? <laughs> in, in the alternate universe, it's a nightly program. That's the problem. You know, the idea that the the aliens have been around for decades and some people in the government know it, but it's such a big secret that it's even been kept from like the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and the president is an interesting concept to inject into a movie like this. It's, it's basically like the first time I can remember seeing like a deep state implied by a film. And, uh, and it's also interesting that like the aliens don't seem to have learned anything about us in that time, because like when the U S starts to coordinate a global effort to, to shoot down these ships, once they get the shield down, they use uncoded Morse code to, to transmit that message. And it seems like the aliens should be like, if, if we can upload a computer virus to them, shouldn't they be able to decode like SOS? I think if you had the power to uh, to do like flights across galaxies, then you'd have a code breaking team on your ship that could like probably figure out Morse code pretty fast. Like the equivalent on the ship is that nerd playing mini golf at, at SETI. Like there's, <laughs> there's that guy on the mothership somewhere, right? 
Yeah, right. Or somebody that's somebody that's also like monitoring all the people just talking on open walkie talkie channels throughout this whole movie where it's just like, okay, we've got the plan. The Morris code guy tells us that we were, we're all launching at once and we got to, we're going to upload a virus. I just love that the, that the alien computer is also using MS DOS. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, crucially, they never show us the cabling involved in this, right? Are they wirelessly uploading this virus to them? Yeah, it must have I been. I couldn't really tell. A SCSI to serial adapter and it's like, <laughs> you know, where do you get one at a time like this? Like is Radio Shack even open? And I think to watch films in the late 90s is to experience like the the bloom of Will Smith as a film actor, right? And I'm not sure if this film knew who he was or was going to be, given that you don't really meet him until 25 minutes into the film. It does pay off the promise of him at the end. He is definitely the hero of the story. But uh, it's interesting to see, like, to see him early in his career. This is like right, this was a film that came in right after Bad Boys. And I think as soon as Independence Day was over, uh, his success was going to be guaranteed as a film actor, as a as a bankable film star. Oh, he he did Men in Black right after, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, and that those three films I think are are just a tremendous launch for a career. You can't underestimate the power of getting jiggy with it, right? <laughs> which came out just a couple of years after this. I mean, when I told people I was going to be watching this movie for Friendly Fire, like the thing that came back at me was like, oh, Will Smith, not great. Like all of his Will Smithy taglines, kind of cringy. That's what I call a close encounter. Like he is like extremely Will Smithy in some parts, in some ways that Michael Bay really emphasized in the Bad Boys films. Right. But I don't know. He just has a special charisma that uh that that like i think he is able to rise above the dialogue he's given in films like this yeah i wonder how much he writes his own stuff too because like some of those like oh you did not shoot that green shit at me yeah feels so personal to him as a as an actor like it's so on brand for him that i wonder if that was even in the script like that it feels like he's Mike Lowry from Bad Boys in this movie. Like right yeah. on down to the the climax of the film is like trying to escape the mothership uh, before the door closes. Like that's the airport runway escape in the Porsche scene all over again, where he's screaming and they're trying to make it out before the thing explodes. Like that's almost shot for shot, that same moment. Yeah. And it's like, it's that stuff that, yeah. People found so compelling. I love it. <laughs> In a weird way, this movie kind of feels like a celebration of the amazing variety of weapons the United States can bring to bear on a thing. Like, it's almost like the Cold War is over. Who could we use all this shit to fight as like the as like the writing exercise that <laughs> led to this script? Like, we see nuclear submarines in this movie we see a weird like laser spotting tank that they use to make sure the nuke goes off and actually takes out the alien ship and there's like a ton of debate like are we actually going to set off 
a device over American soil. Like, what does that say about us? Crucially, like this is this film is a demonstration of like the impotence of that stuff. Yeah, like none of it works. This is the um, the premise of like a whole genre of science fiction, right? That that uniting the world's people is actually it's it's not that it will take a, a, an outside enemy so much as it is that it would be so easy to unite the world if only we had the smallest trigger of an outside enemy. And it's kind of a hopeful premise. And this movie does nothing with that. It, uh, yeah. and even the tech, even the technology porn of it, <laughs> um, you know, the real technology that, that wins the day is Jeff Goldblum. Who's what? Some kind of TV network executive. I think he's an engineer at like a, a, TV network, but it, there is some line about like, I can't believe you spent eight years at MIT only to be a glorified cable guy or something like that. Yeah. Right. What, what is he even, what is he doing? Like what kind of cable engineer? Yeah. There's a very thin, like D plot about him being a guy that is less ambitious than his wife who works at the white house, which is why he can call someone at the white house when he wants to. <laughs> but, but, but his technology, which is, which seems to be like a compact lap device of some kind. What what is that? Does anybody recognize the the history of computers? What that little uh, oh, that's a that is an Apple PowerBook. It's a yep. that was like oh. major major product placement for Apple. Oh, Apple PowerBook, right on. So he's got his Apple PowerBook, and he saves the world with some some bleep bloops or something like yeah. the, like. There's no. There's no technology porn in this. The FT uh, the F18 can presumably be flown by any drunk. And <laughs> uh like that that little that little tank that you're saying witness the thing is like some Cold War era armored personnel carrier, not even a thing. Like those guys didn't survive that. <laughs> they got cooked in that thing. But like what do you think of the the nuclear stuff in this movie? It's an interesting thought experiment about like what is the you know how the line moves in proportion to what has happened to you, what you're willing to accept strategically uh, given what has come before. I think one of the things that that a better movie, I think, would have would have marshaled was like the pace at which the president needs to make decisions, you know, based on unfolding events and new information feels like it was stressful and dangerous in the first half an hour of the film. And became less and less interesting as the decisions became more and more obvious. In that way that you're talking about, John, like when all of the cities are gone, I guess it doesn't really matter as much as it used to whether or not you're going to set off a uh, a nuclear weapon over Denver or whatever, if Denver's not even there. But in the beginning, I, f I found that really compelling. Like all those, the need to make the decisions at the pace that they were, I, I thought was are rightly done. You're going to you're going to start right with a with tactical nukes. That missile that launches out of the B2. I mean, that's not this is not some 40 megaton Moscow destroying nuke presumably. <laughs> it's a it's a tactical nuke. It's a battlefield nuke. And the way it goes off over that thing, like it hits it and 
presumably it hits one side of it and kind of cleans out that side of Denver and the other side of Denver is fine. I think the next thing you would have done is throw a big nuke at it. Let me see. The the largest bomb in the U.S. arsenal now is the B-83 with a maximum yield of 1.2 megatons, which is not very big relative to, I think, in the during the Cold War, we had bombs that were 9 megatons. And pretty sure the Tsar Bomba, which was the bomb that the Russians set off that was the biggest bomb in history, was... 50 megatons. Let's see your spaceship have, you know, bounce one of those off. Of course, that would have melted all of Colorado, but. I'm looking at the aircraft capable of carrying that bomb, and it goes from B1, B2 all the way down to F18 and F22. Can carry a B83? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's it's 12 feet long. It's not comically large for its yield. Oh, this says here that the B-53 was still in the U.S. arsenal until 2011. So we would have had plenty of B-53s stacked up uh, in 1996. They would have been just sitting around. That's what you want to huck at it. <laughs> yeah, throw your trash nukes at it. Not going to use them anyway. Yeah. They really make the Secretary of Defense look like an asshole in the nuke moment when he like yeah. pumps his fist. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that, that didn't actually work, bud. Premature celebration's a bad look. Every movie like this has a scene like that where the, the control room throws their papers up and starts pouring the champagne and then one guy is still asking for confirmation on his headset. Why can't these movies get away from that moment? I don't know. Well, we spent so much emotional and intellectual energy thinking about what nuclear bombs were going to do and be and how they were going to change the world. And there's this, I think, in people my age and older, total blue balls about the nukes. Like, really? All of that and nothing? We never even used a single one of them? No, no bunker was ever busted? No town was vaporized? Like, it's all we thought about. Such an astonishing misallocation of resources in human history. But also misallocation of just emotional resources, even if the whole thing had been fake. The amount of heartache it caused, the amount of just like mental preoccupation. I think a lot of these disaster movies, and I think this is true of superhero movies too, where whole cities are destroyed. This massive hangover. Wow. (laughs) I mean, in a way, it's our patrimony. For the, from the 20th century, that there's just a lot of us that can't get those images of buildings collapsing, people being vaporized, like they, they filled our dreams. And all these movie makers that are 50 years old or whatever are like, fuck, I just can't get, you know, what if Superman did it? What if, what if it was the beavers? What if they built a beaver dam so big that it vaporized the world? This is definitely like the movie that I think of first when I think of disaster movie that showed really plausible city destruction. I think that it it set a trend for that stuff too. Like when 
when you see the the beam come down and you're you're seeing close-ups of buildings blow for a while but then you cut to the wide shot and that like expanding donut of of fire is ripping through the dc suburbs at that point is like an incredible image and i don't think it was really like possible before this movie like nobody had actually like nailed it at, at that scale the willingness of this movie to to vaporize a few characters that were that were given names in the beginning of the movie the first yeah the first quarter of the movie we meet a handful of people that we get to know that we that we're it's signaled that we're going to be with these people we're going to see Marty Gilbert's going to make it right right and then we watch them burn up and it does give the movie a brief uh I don't know gravity uh, that it, that the movie's willing to kill off its main characters or or w- willing to care care off its subordinate characters. I thought it did that so insufficiently for me, and I think you know elevating this argument to its quote unquote main characters. The way that it kills Harry Connick Jr., a character who's supposed to be Will Smith's best friend, and we forget about him utterly in the next scene. Like, on the one hand, I understand what a film like this is trying to do with trauma. It's trying to turn the the macro trauma into the thing that that is the blanket over all other kinds, right? Like, Will Smith can't possibly feel grief over his friend because he's got to destroy the aliens responsible and save billions of lives versus the one. But... Like, even when you consider the president's wife's death and how kind of empty that feels, I don't like the stakes that this film plays with with its grief. And I think this film would be better if it took its grief more seriously. And I think it's okay if it if it had. What's it all for? John, this is like an exportable property, I feel like, that that went into superhero movies that followed. Like, the lesson that this film taught the films of today isn't just how plausibly we can make city blocks look when they're destroyed. It's how little we care about the people in the buildings. Like, the scope of the thing is purely visual and it's not emotional in any way. And, like, that is the enduring lesson of the thing. I was surprised at how much more in this movie and and honestly only in bill pullman's face is any of this registered right he's the only person that that he shoulders the weight of the world he mourns the death of all the people in the cities he is the conscience of i guess the entire film right because jeff goldblum has no conscience and will smith has no conscience Dr. Oaken is like the guy who's watching the movie with us and is like, it's actually kind of crazy and awesome what's going on. And it's like Bill Pullman turns to camera and reminds us that, you know, this has come at a great cost. It's really the John Roderick of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Even the even the stripper with a heart of gold, like there's no conscience to any of them. It's just Bill Pullman. But even that has more conscience than the movie that's movies that followed the, those, yeah. the superhero movies where, where hundreds of millions die. No one even registers their deaths at all. And then we sit through the credits and at the end, Hancock shows up and there's a joke about why Hancock is in the Marvel comics universe and bump, 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 And it's like, what happened to the 600 million people that died? 
At least in this movie, we have Bill Pullman to look like a hangdog sad sack. You guys are going to hate me for saying this, but like it's one of the reasons I think some of all fears is is one of the good Clancy's is because when that device goes off, I think we've already been with all of the characters who suffer from it. We experience it in the hospital when it goes off with Jack's wife. Like, I feel like that's the way to experience a moment like that. And yeah. so few movies get that right. That We did talk about that being a uh, pretty profound scene. I don't remember how badly I excoriated that movie but it did <laughs> have a better it did have a better version of apocalypse than this one did yeah well uh will our rating of the film be apocalyptic it's a question i have about this point in every friendly fire episode <laughs> will this film burn in the <laughs> nuclear fire of our ratings <laughs> <laughs> yes even the pork chop films get their own uh, custom rating system and I'm here to tell us what that is. Sometimes I will watch a film and be struck by a prop that I want. I want to own something that I see from the film. And in Independence Day, there is a prop that shows up uh, during a scene that most people might forget about. It's its significance, but something that I've been thinking about ever since watching this film. So the Levinsons have boarded Air Force One and... Like the dream of riding on Air Force One is still alive for me. I'm I'm fascinated by that plane. I love the scene of Air Force One landing at Area 51 in this movie. Got a kick out of that. But the idea that uh, the Air Force One has barf bags on it and they're and they're given <laughs> the presidential seal and everything, this has got to be a real thing. And not only that, it's a thing that I really want. I want an Air Force One barf bag almost as much as anything on Air Force One. Like, I know Air Force One has its own china and its own, like, uh, engraved cutlery and stuff. You can keep all that. Give me the Air Force One barf bag. I think it'd be super fun to have. And I think it makes a great rating system for Independence Day because you know what it's there for. You hope you don't have to use it. (laughs) And... In context, it's meaningful because at the time this film first came out, I think a lot of us thought we were getting on board a special ride, right? At least I did. I I thought this was going to be a treat. My expectations were so high. I was so innocent as a as a high schooler. I thought this was going to feel significant and real, and instead, it was not that at all. It was the first time that I can remember that I was really, really let down by a film's promise. And it made me cynical in a way that as a film goer, I've never recovered from. Um, I'm less excited about films based on their trailers because of Independence Day. So uh, as sick as it made me to watch this film at the time and because of that vertigo I still kind of feel when I go watch movies, that conflict between the expectation and the reality of a thing, I think that's what makes one to five Air Force One barf bags a great rating system for this. It's so frustrating to watch this film. And like you're playing the R-rated version in your mind, I think. At least I am. So many different avenues this film could have taken to become serious. It's never interested in that. 
I think there's a version of this film where Bill Pullman plays it a little less camp. Maybe we get a serious version of him. Maybe we cut out a half an hour. Sometimes I feel like we watch bad films and you feel like you could fix it in the edit. That might be possible here. I don't know. I have a hard time forgiving this film for the hurt that it caused me. At the same time, I have to give it the credit that it that I feel like it deserves. It started a filmmaking language that is still being spoken today. And for its very small part in filmmaking history, I am inclined to give it two Air Force One barf bags. I think ordinarily it would be one, but I think its significance in film will will give it the extra one. I remain disappointed in the promise of this thing. I don't uh, share your experience with this movie. I don't, I, I mean, I remember seeing the trailer and I remember being excited for this movie. And um, part of this is probably that I was 12 years old, but I also think part of it is that I wasn't expecting a, a super serious thing going in. And I think that for all of the silly stuff in this movie, for all of the uh, implausibilities and, you know, fantastical ease with which it gets the idea across that Jeff Goldblum is a lead enough hacksaw that he can hacks aliens or whatever. Like this movie moves. It, it goes a zillion places. It uses its giant budget to maximum effect. And I'm always entertained by this movie. Anytime it's on, I'm, I, I am happy to watch it because it is, it's, it is a dumb, fun popcorn flick. And I think that's all it ever uh, meant to be so uh so I'm, i i feel bad that it uh that it holds such a dark place in your heart adam <laughs> um, me too and i think that it kind of set a tone like i think i think its place in movie history is not that small i think this is the model that a lot yeah for better or for worse that a lot of uh the films that we are getting even this summer uh, are kind of working off of like it changed our appetites in so many ways like i think part of it is is the tolerance for a two and a half hour film yeah also i think started here it's an interesting document of its time it's always surprising to me how how comfortable it is being the weird movie it is despite how big it is <laughs> like you're right like bill pullman's choices make zero sense if you're trying to make a movie with a ton of gravity and that might be the thing that I think is best about this movie is like, what if the president is kind of dopey? Yeah. What if, what if he is, what if he is not there to make us feel the intense seriousness of everything, but he's like a president puppet to, to laugh at, you know, the, the tropey things that happen to a president in a situation like this. Um, so I give it, I give it slightly higher marks than you. I don't think it's a great movie. I don't think it's an essential movie, but it is, a fun pork chop movie to me. So I'll give it three and a half barf bags. All right. I didn't see this movie in 1996 because it was, a, it was a piece of trash and that was obvious to me in my mid twenties hipster art, uh, enclave living in my little basement hovel with wearing my, my red beret and smoking unfiltered Galois. <laughs> and I didn't see it when it was on TV, I guess, cause I didn't even have a TV. And now I was finally forced to see this fucking steaming pile because of this show that I love to do with my two 
super good bros. But this movie is a crime. It's a crime <laughs> against the viewer. It's a crime against humanity. All the things that you say about it, that it ushered in an era of films that cost $1 billion to film that are two and a half or three hours long featuring an all-star cast of people completely hamming it up with a script that was written by a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters <laughs> where tens of millions of people die unmourned where a, a basically a universe is created, which is then it, it becomes a, it becomes like a, a reciprocating uh, universe with the one we actually live in so that people that live in America today, their reality is somewhat shaped by independence day and the reality <laughs> it created. And that reality is stronger to them than actual reality. So Whoa. that there are people right now who mourn the unmourned death of Harry Connick Jr. More than they mourn the 100,000 people that have died of coronavirus. It's more real to them. It's the movie that's the virus. The movie is the <laughs> infectious agent that has gotten in beneath our immune systems in the form <laughs> it, it encases itself in pork chop what? in order to get past our immune systems. And then once there, it infects your brain and your heart and your groinal area. I always record this show standing up and I am like, I'm off balance from that, John. <laughs> I, I was like pushed away from the mic. Other than the, the beautiful scene of them getting into the mothership and realizing the scope and the scale of this invasion and how big a foe they're facing and the universe within that mothership where you're like, there are barber shops in here. There's like, <laughs> there's like theaters in here, you know, like these aliens are going, they're having their nails done. They're like somewhere on this ship. There's an alien that's holding up some, some alien suit and asking its friend, like, which one, this one or this one, does this one, this one just, I don't know. It kind of bunches around the waist. What about this one? Everything is happening inside this world. And for a brief moment, this film gives us a glimpse of it in the form of all these ships, these enormous ships transiting the inside of this, this ship. And even our heroes, even our dumb, mirthless, unsympathetic heroes take a second to marvel at it. That's the only moment in this movie that has any humanity. And I give it, I give it negative one Air Force One barf bags. Oh! <laughs> You're going to really destroy the carefully modeled graphs that have been made about this show. This is a show. <laughs> this is a movie that is best represented by a Air Force One barf bag that is given to Adam and then psych taken away again. A barf bag <laughs> oh, that you man. held in your hands and then was taken from you. And the person that t took it from you said, sorry, you're not authorized to have that. And then you watch them as they take it and throw it away instead of you getting it. They burn it in front of you. That's what this movie is. We've got very connected listeners to this show. Nothing would make me happier than the gift of an Air Force One barf bag by, <laughs> by someone out there. Please don't take it away if you have the power to give it. Yeah. I would love that very much. Yeah, that would be nice. But this movie is not nice. 
Is your guy nice, though, John? Who's your guy? When Bill Pullman gives his speech through his megaphone out there on the on the uh, aerodrome, and he gets to the end and he says, today is our Independence Day. Yeah. And there's a shot. It just cuts to a shot of a guy. He's this like, <laughs> he's this Winnebago homunculus wearing a, <laughs> like a World War II bomber's cap that you might put on your dog if your dog was riding in the sidecar of your of your Vespa. <laughs> and he gives this salute to the president. That's the most, uh, it's the biggest salute anyone's ever given. You know, he touches the side of his eyebrow and then he karate chops that salute. Like he's trying to break <laughs> a stack of cinder blocks with the edge of his hand. Just like his whole body is in it. Yeah. He is so jazzed. And whoever that actor was, whatever that take was when they were editing this film and they were like, wow, wow, this movie is so freaking over the top. Are we really going to use this? And it's like, yes, that's the shot. That guy. <laughs> he really wound up and delivered. So that's my guy. I think my guy is, is related to that guy. There's a guy that shows up toward the, towards the end of this film that I feel like has a storyline that got cut. He's Harley Davidson hat guy. Uh-huh. I feel like he might have been the Porkins that got cut out. Like he's one of the pilots. He returns from the mission and he is right next to the president during the celebration. Your eye finds him. Yeah. And he's got this real Sam Elliott kind of silhouette <laughs> to him. Sam Elliott with a with a Harley Davidson hat. Like 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 Sam Elliott from Mask is who this character is in Independence Day. I couldn't take my eyes off of him and it's because he's standing right next to Bill Pullman and he looks the way he does. Like he is stealing these scenes and every scene that he's in, (laughs) it felt like he was supposed to be a part of something that he wasn't. Anyway, the, the imagination that I have surrounding this character and what his life must be like to go from NASCAR infield to fighter jet. Give me that D story. Give me the Porkin story. Don't you want to see the movie where that guy in a plane that he built from a kit he got out of Popular Mechanics is taking (laughs) on the mothership along with Randy Quaid in a biplane that's got a nuke strapped to its wingtip? Don't you want to see that movie? do. Let's make that movie now. Yeah, I think he represents the possibilities that we don't get in this movie. So he's going to be my guy. (laughs) Unfortunately, right now, that character, not that actor, is like spraying air freshener around his house to combat chemtrails and is yeah. <laughs> convinced that the world is flat. How many, how many 5G towers has he shot a gun at? <laughs> the number of QAnon bookmarks that are open on his Dell. Yeah. This was as good as it got for Harley Davidson hat guy. Yeah, that was the peak of his culture and society. Uh-huh. You know, my guy is much earlier in the film in the in the scene in the tunnel in, in LA when when Vivica A Fox looks in the rearview mirror and sees the fireball coming she's able to get her young son uh to cover but uh we don't know if the dog is going to make it but the dog makes it last minute dog is my guy god damn it such a cute doggy he's a good boy he is a good boy well i hope people come back uh next month for our uh a review of the 2016 film Independence Day: <laughs> Colon Resurgence. Wow! 
Oh, it's got a colon. Is that really what we're doing? <laughs> no. No, no. Is Bill Pullman the president of the world after this? I'm kind of curious about what happens after. I have seen Independence Day Resurgence. It has Bill Pullman. It has Jeff Goldblum. It has Brent Spiner. What? No. It has Judd Hirsch. No. The the whole band's back together. Impossible. Oh, but except for Will Smith. Will Smith is the only one that didn't come back. Yeah. Wow. You know, this movie did, for the first time ever, make me confront the fact that I finally understood why some people think Jeff Goldblum is really foxy. Mm. Oh, yeah. For many years, that was inconceivable to me. Jeff Goldblum was a comedy actor with a comedy face and a comedy physique. (laughs) And then I remember overhearing a conversation where two girls were salivating over Jeff Goldblum. And I was like, Jeff Goldblum? You mean the guy from The Fly? Jeff Goldblum? Like the goofy guy? Goofy? And they were like, yes, we specifically want to fuck him when he's got like some fly parts, but not all fly parts. Yeah, right. There was no. And then so for many years, I've been very confused by this aspect of the Internet. And then in this movie, I find, you know, because he he goes through this whole movie with his shirt unbuttoned to his to his belly button. And I was like, oh, Jeff Goldblum. Huh. He's kind of a. Yeah, I guess he's kind of a handsome guy. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit cute. He's no Will Smith. All right, guys, this was super fun. All right, guys, this was super fun. <laughs> been pretty good today. Woof, woof, woof. Well, guys, this has been super fun, and I think we got to leave it with Rob's, Rob's, Rob's from here. Uh, but uh, thanks to everyone who has supported the show, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed the pork chop feed. It may not be here forever. So, uh,. Uh, keep encouraging people to go to MaximumFun.org slash join. You've already done it. Why can't your friends do it? Yeah, what's wrong with them? Yeah, good point. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire's Pork Chop Feed is a Maximum Fun podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. You can now follow Friendly Fire on Twitter and on Instagram under the handles Friendly Fire RSS. And that's in addition to the discussion group we have on Facebook. So join in the conversation. Thanks so much for supporting Friendly Fire. As the show grows, the support grows, and we really appreciate it. But we still need help. So if you know anyone who'd enjoy the pork chop feed, do not hesitate to let them know that they should go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Thanks. We'll see you next time on Friendly Fire. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.